Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Brian Wong, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Lyme disease. If you're following along in your book, it's case number 51, entitled, A 35-Year-Old Male with Fatigue and Rash. So the case begins with a 35-year-old male from Massachusetts with no significant past medical history, who's presenting to your urgent care clinic in July with complaints of mild fatigue and a slowly expanding rash near his axilla that appeared about six days ago. Review of systems is otherwise negative. He says that he embarked on a hike in the woods near his home three weeks prior to this visit, but he denies any animal or insect bites that he knows of. He is single and has no recent sexual history. He also denies any drug use. Vital signs are normal, and there are no pertinent positives on the physical exam besides a rash seen in figure 51.1 in the book. Now, looking at the rash in the picture, you see a proximal arm rash with, over the extensor surface in a circular appearance, the outer border as an erythema-type coloration with an, a next layer of uh, central clearing, followed by the center being a confluent erythema. So with this type of appearance of a rash, what is your differential diagnosis? So erythema migrans, or EM, the rash caused by Lyme disease, is high on the differential. EM begins at the site of a tick bite and is frequently homogeneously red for the first few days. Sometimes the center of early lesions become intensely erythematous and indurated, vesicular, or even necrotic. The red outer border slowly expands over the course of several days to create a large annular lesion, while the center of the rash may be partially clear. Hence the term target or bullseye that are often used to describe this rash. Occasionally, the expanding lesion remains an evenly intense red. Several rings can be found within the larger outside ring, or the central area turns blue before the lesion clears. The lesion is warm and is often described by patients as burning. It can sometimes be pruritic or even painful. EM can be accompanied by mild constitutional symptoms such as fatigue and malaise. But what are other etiologies to consider in the differential diagnosis for EM? They are cellulitis, hypersensitivity, or an allergic reaction to tick bite saliva, it could be a man- skin manifestation of a spider bite. Others in the differential include tinea or ringworm infections, granuloma annulare rash, pityriasis rosea rash, and if the lesions are more vesicular, then herpes simplex or varicella zoster are in the differential, as well as erythema multiforme. Now let's look at each one of these differentials a little bit more closely. So cellulitis typically expands more rapidly, lacks central clearing, and is usually painful. 
for hypersensitivity or allergic reactions to tick bite saliva, they also typically expand very rapidly and lack central clearing. Spider bites can cause a lesion with a necrotic center and are often quite painful. Tinea or ringworm lesions are, like EM, annular with central clearing, but they characteristically have peripheral scales. Multiple EM lesions, which can be seen later in the stage of Lyme disease, can resemble erythema multiforme. The distinguishing feature of erythema multiforme is that it can blister and cause lesions on the palms, soles, and mucous membranes. For granuloma annulare, especially localized granuloma annulare, it usually affects the finger or the back of hands, top of foot, or the elbows. For numula eczema, which is usually seen during colder, less humid months, it tends to affect extensor surfaces and frequently associated with atopic dermatitis and patients with asthma. So the next question is, what further testing needs to be performed to help establish a diagnosis? Based upon the patient's history and physical exam as described, no further tests are warranted as the history and physical exam highly suggests a diagnosis of early Lyme disease or stage one or localized infection. This is the only stage of Lyme disease in which the diagnosis should be made on the basis of the clinical picture alone. Testing serologies or antibodies isn't warranted in this stage because significant circulating antibody levels may not have had time to develop. All other stages of Lyme disease require laboratory confirmation. So this leads us to our first clinical pearl. In a patient with classic EM rash, who lives in or recently traveled to an area endemic for Lyme disease, do not perform any further lab testing. Empirically treat based on clinical diagnosis alone. Treatment with recommended antibiotic regimens lead to faster resolution of the skin lesion and may prevent dissemination of Lyme disease. What is the etiology of Lyme disease? Lyme disease is the most common tick-borne illness in North America and Europe. Lyme disease is caused by the spirochete bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi and can be transmitted to humans by various tick species with unique geographic distributions. The Ixodes scapularis tick, or deer tick, is the primary vector in the United States and is found throughout New England, the Mid-Atlantic states, and also in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota. The majority of Lyme disease cases in the U.S. occur in these regions. Ixodes pacificus is another tick species that can frequently transmit Lyme disease in the coastal regions of Oregon and Northern California. Now, is it unusual that the patient doesn't recall a tick bite? No, even though a tick must be attached for at least 24 hours to transmit Lyme disease, the tick is in its nymphal stage, which is the period in its life cycle in which it infects humans. It is quite small and often goes unnoticed. Therefore, the absence of a reported tick bite should not deter the clinician when considering Lyme disease as a diagnosis. So for our second clinical pearl, in a patient with exposure to a Lyme endemic area with a clinical picture suggestive of Lyme disease, inquiring about the possibility of tick bite is imperative and can aid in the diagnosis, 
even in the absence of a known tick bite. So asking about the possibility of a tick bite is what is key. The next question we have is what are the clinical stages of Lyme disease? So if we look at table 51.1 in the book, it's entitled Clinical Manifestations of Lyme Disease with Recommended Therapy. So Lyme disease is classified into three clinical stages, but there can be some overlap between them. In the first category, we have early infection, which is called stage one or localized infection. And this occurs after an incubation period of about three to 32 days. And erythema migraines rash characterizes this stage in about 80% of patients and can be accompanied by regional lymphadenopathy with mild constitutional symptoms such as fatigue and malaise. And the preferred route of therapy is oral antibiotics for 10 to 14 days, depending upon the antibiotics selected. The next stage is stage two, or disseminated infection. And this stage begins within days to weeks after the onset of erythema migraines. Some of the neurologic manifestations within this stage begin within weeks to months after the onset of EM. It is in this stage that a plethora of signs and symptoms develop. But the focus here will be on some of the more noteworthy findings. Initially, patients often develop multiple annular secondary skin lesions as a result of metogenous dissemination. They appear similar to the initial EM lesion, but are smaller and do not have indurated centers. EM and these stage 2 lesions usually disappear within three to four weeks. Severe constitutional symptoms such as fevers, chills, fatigue, malaise, myalgias, and headache are often present early in this stage and are the initial symptoms of infection in 18% of patients. Migratory arthralgias and myalgias may also develop. After several weeks to months, about 15% of untreated patients develop neurologic abnormalities such as meningitis, encephalitis, cranial neuritis, motor and sensory radiculoneuritis, mononeuritis multiplex, cerebellar ataxia, or myelitis. A few weeks after Lyme disease symptoms begin, about 5% of untreated patients develop cardiac disease. The most typical cardiac findings are first-degree atrioventricular, or AV block, the winky block, or complete heart block. And the preferred therapy differs depending upon the presenting symptoms. It can range from oral antibiotics from 14 to 28 days or intravenous antibiotics from 14 to 28 days. Next, we have late stage infection, which is stage three, also called persistent infection. This occurs months after initial symptoms. In this stage, it's mainly characterized by arthritis with larger joints more commonly involved than smaller joints, oftentimes involving the knee. Other late manifestations of Lyme disease include Lyme encephalopathy, where subtle cognitive disturbances can be seen, and peripheral neuropathies also can be seen. Acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans is a late skin manifestation that primarily occurs in Lyme disease acquired in Europe and Asia. So how is stage two and three Lyme disease diagnosed? 
Well, in contrast to stage one Lyme disease, the diagnosis of Lyme disease in these later stages is made by a combination of clinical features and laboratory testing. Our next basic science clinical pearl is that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, currently recommends a two-step serologic testing approach to detect antibodies, immunoglobulin IgG and immunoglobulin IgM, against Borrelia burgdorferi. An enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA test, is performed first, with positive or indeterminate results confirmed by a Western blot. As noted earlier in the case, Serologic testing is often negative in early Lyme disease because antibodies can take up to one month to develop. To minimize false positive and false negative results, only patients who have a high pretest probability should have the two-step serologic testing performed. This requires the presence of symptoms of early disseminated or late Lyme disease, recent exposure to an endemic area for Lyme disease, and risk factors for tick exposure. Furthermore, do not use serologic testing to screen asymptomatic patients who live in an endemic area, nor those with chronic nonspecific subjective symptoms, such as just fatigue or myalgias. The next clinical pearls for you are that after seroreactivity has been demonstrated, you can improve the diagnostic specificity of Lyme arthritis Synovial fluid or synovial tissue can be sent for Borrelia burgdorferi PCR testing. Another clinical pearl is that in Lyme meningitis, cerebrospinal fluid CSF studies typically show a lymphocytic pleocytosis of about 100 to 150 cells per millimeter cube, but usually less than 300 cells per millimeter cube and CSF Lyme antibodies are positive. The protein is often elevated and the glucose is normal. Now, looking at our case again, the next question is how should this patient be treated? If he had presented with other manifestations of Lyme disease, how would treatment differ? The treatment of Lyme disease is based on clinical manifestations and the stage of disease. With a few exceptions described below, Oral doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 to 21 days is generally the preferred treatment for patients eight years or older with early localized or early disseminated disease because it also has activity against some other tick-borne pathogens. Other oral options are amoxicillin and cefiroxine. Amoxicillin should be used in pregnant patients. Specifically for children, the American Academy of Pediatrics supports the use of doxycycline for children less than eight years of age if it is administered for less than 21 days. For patients with objective neurologic disease such as meningitis, a two to four week course of intravenous ceftriaxone is commonly used for treatment. However, cranial nerve palsy alone is typically treated with oral doxycycline as opposed to IV ceftriaxone. Advanced heart block, such as that found in third degree or complete heart block, should be treated with IV ceftriaxone for 14 to 21 days. Arthritis in stage 3 Lyme disease is typically treated with oral doxycycline for a longer course, typically 28 days. In patients with modest synovial proliferation compared to joint swelling, 
And for those who prefer repeating a course of oral antibiotics before considering IV therapy, up to an additional one-month course of oral antibiotics may be reasonable. Lyme arthritis patients with little to no response, meaning moderate to severe joint swelling, little decrease in joint effusion, after an initial course of oral antibiotics, which is a two to four week course of IV ceftriaxone, over a second course of oral antibiotics is recommended. And you can take a look at table 51.2 for uh, more detail. And so to hammer home one of the points, the next clinical pearl is that advanced or third degree or complete heart block in a hospitalized patient caused by Lyme disease should initially be treated with intravenous therapy. Once the advanced heart block resolves, therapy can be completed with an oral agent. Insertion of a permanent pacemaker is not necessary. Okay, now let's turn back to our case. The patient is sent home with doxycycline, but returns to your urgent care clinic a week later with new fevers, chills, and worsened malaise. On physical exam this time, temperature is 38.2 degrees Celsius or 100.8 Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 110 over 64 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 96 per minute. Respiration rate is 16 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. There is slight improvement in the original EM rash, and no other new findings are noted on physical exam. Results of the lab testing are shown in table 51.3. So the result of the lab testing show a white count of 5.8, hemoglobin low at 9.6, platelets low at 110,000, ALT high at 65, total bilirubin high at 3.5, direct bilirubin high at 2.5, LDH or lactate dehydrogenase also high at 350, the haptoglobin is low at 12, and the reticulocyte count is also high at 6.5%. And most importantly, a Gimza-stained thin blood smear reveals parasites in a tetrad form called the Maltese cross formation. So with these additional bits of findings, what is the most likely etiology of what is found? What further testing should be performed? In a patient with Lyme disease who fails to improve or worsens with persistent fever despite treatment with doxycycline, the possibility of co-infection with another tick-borne pathogen of Ixodes should be high on your radar. This patient most likely has concomitant babesiosis a disease caused by the tick-borne parasite Babesia microti. Human granulocytic anaplasmosis, or HGA, caused by Anaplasma phagocytophilum is another possibility, but less likely because doxycycline is also used to treat this disease. The clinical manifestations of babesiosis vary greatly depending on the degree of parasitemia, ranging from asymptomatic infections to severe infections with a significant potential for death. In mild infections, fever is the most common finding. Sweats and chills are also frequently encountered. Other less frequent findings include headache, myalgia, anorexia, nausea, and arthralgias. Severe disease associated with many systemic complications is associated with parasitemia levels greater than 4% 
and warrants hospitalization. Risk factors for severe disease include male gender, age greater than 50, presence of asplenia, history of human immunodeficiency virus or HIV infection, underlying malignancy, and other types of immunosuppression. Babesiosis often causes hemolytic anemia, which typically presents with a low hemoglobin and hematocrit, along with an elevated reticulocyte count and lactate dehydrogenase, or LDH. Low platelets and elevated liver enzymes are also commonly encountered in patients with babesiosis. Further testing should include microscopic exam of a thin blood smear. Serum PCR should be performed along with serologies to confirm the diagnosis of babesiosis if there remains a high clinical suspicion despite the negative thin smear. Treatment is warranted in symptomatic patients. First-line treatment for patients with mild disease is 7-10 to 10 day course of oral etovaquone plus azithromycin. Second-line treatment is clindamycin plus quinine. Patients with severe infection should be treated with intravenous clindamycin plus oral quinine for at least a 7-10 day course. Some patient populations require an extended duration of treatment. So the basic science clinical pearl here is diagnosis of babesiosis is made on heme-sustained thin blood smears. Trophozoites typically appear as rings. Tetrads of merozoites, commonly referred to as Maltese cross, are essentially diagnostic of babesiosis. So associate the term Maltese cross in thin blood smears on right heme-sustained specimens with babesiosis. So ultimately, the diagnosis for this patient is stage one localized Lyme disease with concomitant infection with babesiosis. Now, this case uh, brings up a few other questions. How could these tick-borne diseases have been prevented? The best way to prevent tick-borne diseases is to avoid tick-infested areas. Simple, right? Well, if that's not possible... Patients with possible tick exposure should be advised to use insect repellents containing diethylcholumide, or DEET, D-E-E-T, picaridin, oil of lemon eucalyptus, or O-L-E, and other recommended chemicals. Wear protective clothing such as long pants, long sleeves, light-colored clothing, tucking pants into shoes, socks, or whatever footwear, and wearing permethrin-treated clothing and performing periodic tick checks with prompt removal if ticks are found. Prophylactic antibiotics for Lyme disease after a tick bite are recommended if all the following criteria are met. They are, the tick is identified as Ixodes scapularis, the tick has been attached for greater than 36 hours, Local rates of infections of ticks with Borrelia burgdorferi is greater than 20%, which occurs in most endemic regions. Prophylaxis is given within 72 hours of tick removal, and doxycycline is not contraindicated. If all the above criteria are met, a single dose of doxycycline 200 milligrams has been shown to help prevent Lyme disease. There is currently no vaccine available to prevent Lyme disease. There also is no babesiosis vaccine available, and there is no role for antibiotic prophylaxis for babesiosis. After successful treatment for Lyme disease, 
Some patients continue to have subjective symptoms, including fatigue, myalgias, and arthralgias. These symptoms usually resolve on their own, but if they persist for greater than six months, this is referred to as post-Lyme disease syndrome or chronic Lyme disease. The latter name is actually a misnomer because it implies chronic infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, despite the use of antibiotics. Although the etiology is not known, at this time there is no evidence to suggest that these chronic nonspecific symptoms represent continued infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. Therefore, further antibiotic treatment is not recommended. Randomized controlled trials have also failed to demonstrate a benefit of repeat or prolonged antibiotic treatment for chronic Lyme disease. So the clinical pearl here is in patients with chronic, nonspecific symptoms lasting greater than six months after treatment of Lyme disease, it is important to look for other possible causes of symptoms such as fibromyalgia, depression, or obstructive sleep apnea. So now we'll look at uh, the Beyond the Pearls section, a few tidbits of information to help you. Number one, Lyme disease was first discovered in 1976 after a cluster of children in Lyme, Connecticut, were thought to have juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, or JRA, infection with other diseases, including certain other tick-borne diseases, such as some viral, bacterial, and autoimmune diseases, may contribute to false positive Lyme antibody test results. Number two, in addition to transmitting Borrelia burgdorferi, Ixides scapularis can carry, a, carry Babesia microti and Anaplasma phagocytophila. The agents of babesiosis and human granulocytic anaplasmosis, or HGA, respectively. Doxycycline is the treatment of choice for Lyme disease and HGA, but does not treat babesiosis. Number three, Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, or STARI, S-T-A-R-I, carries a lesion identical to erythema migrans and is transmitted by the Lone Star Tick, Amblyoma americanum, in the southeastern U.S. The causative agent of this disease has not yet been identified. Number four, early in Lyme disease, IgG and IgM will be positive, but after two months, only IgG should be positive. So in a patient presenting over two months after infection, a positive IgM is likely to be a false positive result. Number five, prophylactic antibiotics should be administered within 72 hours of removal of an identified high-risk tick bite, but not for bites that are equivocal risk or low risk. High-risk tick bites are bites from A, an identified Ixodes species, vector species, B, occur in a highly endemic area, and C, the tick was attached for greater than 36 hours. Number six, the CDC criteria for Lyme disease considers an IgM Western blot positive if two out of three bands are present. An IgG is considered positive if five out of 10 bands are present. Number seven, within the first 24 hours of therapy for Lyme disease, about 15% of patients develop transient worsening of symptoms from a Jerish Herxheimer-like reaction. This is the body's immune response to the antigens released when spirochetes are killed. 
This reaction also can occur in secondary syphilis. Number eight, because of low sensitivity, PCR evaluation is not recommended for routine clinical testing of CSF in Lyme disease. Number nine, serologic testing for Lyme disease should not be used to screen asymptomatic patients in endemic regions for Lyme disease, nor patients with chronic nonspecific symptoms, such as myalgias and fatigue. Serologic testing should also not be performed in patients with EM, as these patients should be treated based on clinical diagnosis alone. Point number 10, antibiotic therapy, be it IV or oral, for longer than eight weeks does not provide additional benefit to patients with persistent arthritis if the antimicrobial regimen used included at least one course of IV therapy. Point number 11, Borrelia burgdorferi can be cultured from Barber Stoner Kelly BSK medium for definitive diagnosis. It should be noted that this has only been reliably performed using tissue from EM biopsies. And lastly, point number 12. Doxycycline is relatively contraindicated in pregnant women and children under 8 years old. The preferred treatment of Lyme disease in these cases is amoxicillin. Doxycycline may cause permanent tooth discoloration for children, and if used during pregnancy, may cause problems with tooth and skeletal development in the fetus. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, Vita Brevis.